The, uh, the sermon today begins with a rather difficult situation. And uh, if you want to read this very specifically, basically this is the, the, these are the events which occur in the second book of Samuel, uh, the, uh, the uh, 12th chapter into the 13th into the 13th chapter. It's not really as long as it sounds, but it describes a very difficult situation. And when I say a very difficult situation, that's kind of speaking on the mild side. Because you see, the great King David has fallen in love with Bathsheba. Now this sounds like a good beginning for a uh, two o'clock soap on Monday to Friday afternoon, Uh, but it's not good. Because even though David has fallen in love with Bathsheba, Bathsheba is already married to Uriah. David solves the problem, unfortunately. David determines that the next time they go into battle, he will place Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, by putting him in the front line of the attack. It's almost always a fatal circumstance. I mean, let's realize what's being said here. We, we have um, David taking one of his leaders and basically condemning that leader to death. Why? Because David had fallen in love with, with uh, Uriah's, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, And that was David's answer. Samuel responds to these circumstances by telling a parable. And we're we're used to parables in the New Testament. We're not so much used to them in the Old Testament, but they're there, and this is one of them. Uh, the, the, The great prophet of his time, Samuel, talks about two men who live in a city. One is very rich and one is very poor. But the poor man had one possession which he counted to be more precious than anything else that he had. He had a prize lamb. The lamb won all sorts of honors. The lamb was, was a, a, something that his neighbors would have liked to have had. He counted that lamb as being so very precious. That poor man with that one great possession, the lamb, unfortunately has something that the rich landowner wants to have, and that's that prized lamb. He's going to have a banquet, have all of his friends in, and he wants to serve the best that he can, and so he decides that 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 lamb that had been nurtured so carefully and taken care of so beautifully and prized so highly that that lamb is what he wanted for this great banquet. Getting a little little tight here with, with this description, but this is the way it was. And so the ewe lamb was stolen. Uh, stolen by David, really. David got what he wanted. He got what he wanted not because he really, really needed that ewe lamb, but because it's what he wanted. And he was used to getting what he wanted. Uh, Kings are like that. They're, They're absolute potentates. They have total authority. And 
David was in that particular situation at this time. And so he had the lamb taken, slaughtered for the banquet he was to give. And as this all unfolds, it comes as a mystery seemingly to David because when David, when David hears a, a parable about the stealing of a rich, by a rich man of a ewe lamb, David becomes very angry. And David says, show me this man. I'll have him killed. And Nathan, the great prophet, says to David, you are that man. Wow. Condemned by your own words, by what you thought would be an, a, a, a situation wherein you would punish someone who had done something evil, you look into the mirror and you find that you're the one who is guilty of the, this excess. We all, I think, have a tendency to a great extent um, to perhaps minimize our own faults. But in David's case, this is not just a minor, minor circumstance. He wants what he wants. Again, I'll, I'll say not because he needed this, this prize you lamb, but because someone else had the prize you lamb. And what, what David wanted is not necessarily the prize you lamb, but the other man's wife. He wanted Uriah's wife, the beautiful Bathsheba. And he does what he wants to have done because he can do it, because he wants to do it. He places Uriah in front of the army in a battle and Uriah is killed. And David now really as great as he was, could be very, very obscure when he was looking at his own faults. And he misses the fact completely of what he has, what he has done. He didn't throw this, the spear or shoot the arrow to kill Uriah, but he did have Uriah placed in the spot where almost always that person was killed as they led the charge. It was not that David needed another wife. Yeah, polygamy was, was popular in those days in, in, in the scripture and recorded in the Old Testament, but not because he, he wasn't married, because he already was. But he planned the death of Uriah because he wanted Uriah's wife. Not yet other wives. There was, the polygamy was practiced in that day and time. And he doesn't take responsibility for it. But brothers and sisters, isn't this true that many times we do not take responsibility for what we've said or done or haven't said or haven't done? Um, look at the story of Adam and Eve. And that famous, that famous apple, uh, the, the apple which, which Eve had, Adam wanted one. And finally he takes one. 
when someone says, where did you get the apple from? And we were assuming it's, it's a, a message from God. Where did you, you get the apple from? I told you not to, no one should eat of, of the fruit of this apple tree, which is in the center of the Garden of, of Eden. What are you doing eating this apple? What does he say? Gentlemen, get ready. We don't look good at this point. He says, he says, Adam, when he's asked where he got the apple, he said, it wasn't me. My wife gave it to me. Gentlemen, I warned you, we're in trouble at this particular point. How about Eve then? What did she do? She's on the firing line. What's her response? Oh, it wasn't me who started off this whole business that had had been told by God we should not do this, we should not touch this tree or eat of the fruit of it. Well, well, yeah, it's true that I gave gave this apple to to, uh, Adam, but but it, it wasn't my fault. The serpent gave it to me. Wonderful excuse. And the word comes to Adam you're the one. You're the one who's at the center of all of this. Make confession of, of what you've done. And brothers and sisters, I speak this to you and I speak it to me. There comes that time when we have to be responsible for what we've said or done or haven't said or haven't done. We have to take responsibility for our own actions. I, um, I started out, as, as most United Methodist ministers do, serving a little church. I guess I was lucky because I only had one to serve, and more often than not, some of my colleagues had a couple uh, churches on a circuit, but I ended up with this one church. Um, had about 100 members. Uh, it's, it's still sitting out there in, in northeast Baltimore. It survived me being there for a couple of years. Uh, it, it's still there. Uh, and it had a situation in which, thankfully, thankfully, we we needed more seating than we had. Didn't have a center aisle. The, the pews just came right across the center of the church, but there were two side aisles. And it was, it was good that, uh, that we had those side aisles because uh, attendance was good and we couldn't really comfortably fit people in the, uh, in, in the, the center pews. Uh, and so we set up chairs down either side. There was room enough for Two, seat, two chairs on either side of the aisle and went down the, the length of the, of the sanctuary, which wasn't very long. Um, uh, Jeff, the length of the sanctuary was from about here to where you're sitting, so, so it wasn't a big church. Uh, and um, one Sunday morning, in the sermon, there was a quiet time. Yes, ministers do have quiet times in their sermons once in a while. We do take a breath once in a while. And I heard clippity clop, clippity clop, and I couldn't figure out what it was. What was happening in the middle of the sermon, this strange sound. I looked over into, onto one side, and there was a youngster sitting there, um, came to church with his parents every Sunday, good as gold, never any problems. But this particular Sunday, he was rocking back and forth on one of those folding chairs. One of the church members leaned over to him and said something to him. I couldn't tell what she had said to him, but, and then he said something to her, and as she went back to her pew, she was, she was literally laughing. And I said to her afterwards, 
what did, what did you say to little so-and-so, and what did he say to you that sent you back to your pew laughing? And she said, well, when I told him he should stop rocking and making that noise, he said, but it's not me, it's the chair. <laughs> now, now, that's the ultimate in finding an excuse for what, for what you're doing. I wish it were that simple for us, usually. We look at, we look at the story of Adam and Eve, and when Adam's challenged for eating that apple, and he blames it on Eve. It, it wasn't me, and Eve blames it on the serpent, the serpents were, were another synonym for, for the evil one, the devil himself. Um, it wasn't me. The, the serpent gave, gave it to me. It's just the same as saying it's not me, it's the chair. It's an excuse. To point a finger, figure, finger at another or, or to, um, to say it's not my responsibility for this circumstance or that circumstance. There comes a time in our spiritual lives where we need to take responsibility for who we are and what we are, what we say and what we don't say, what we do and what we don't do. And that's what we're looking at this morning, taking responsibility, not pointing the finger at another, but taking responsibility for who we are. In Luke um, 18, chapter 11, one of the Pharisees is cited by, by the writer Luke, basically saying, when I was out the other day at, and I was at the temple, a, a criticism was made, and the, re, and the response was by the Pharisee, oh, it's not my fault. I, I'm thankful that I'm not like other people. Put it, sort of putting himself on a step above everybody else. And when Jesus pointed this, this out, he said the, the Pharisee in the temple had something to learn. He should have looked at that tax collector. And tax collectors were hated in those days. Uh, we, we don't like IRS, but we don't take it out on their individual people, I hope, uh, and think. Um, but at this particular time, where are we? We are at the point where some accusations are being made and some excuses are being made. And the Pharisee says in this circumstance, Luke chapter 18, verses 11, I thank God that I'm not like other people. I thank God that I'm not like other men. And when, when he says this, there is an underlying statement there. It's not carried, but he's saying, I'm thankful that I'm not a sinner. I'm a Pharisee, after all. I'm a, I'm a big dude in this congregation. Um, instead, there was a man, a tax collector, who was hated by, by the Jews because the tax collectors were serving, were at least not even serving the, their Jewish population. They were gathering this money to be sent to Rome. The Pharisee said, under these circumstances, I thank God that I'm not like other men. And the tax collector that hated of all beings says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that's, that's our, our prayer. That's your prayer and my prayer. Not blaming other people for what we say or do or don't say or don't do, but confessing our faults. We need to do that. 
We need to do it within our home situation, within our work situation, within a neighborhood cir- circumstance, whatever the circumstance may be. We need to say that when things go wrong, it's not always somebody else's fault. Sometimes it's mine. E. Stanley Jones, whom you know I, I, love, I love to quote, spoke about people who go around pointing their finger at others and, and not in a favorable manner. See what, see what that playmate of yours did? I, won't, I don't want you to be around him anymore. He might lead you astray. Uh, see what that neighbor did? Um, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that neighbor. E. Stanley Jones said that one of the great faults of humankind is that we point our fingers at other people and hold them responsible, often for things that we have done. And he offered us this very simple suggestion that when we have the tendency to point a finger at someone else, like the pastor now preaching, he's pointing his finger at everybody in the congregation, when we're doing that, we should remember that when we point one finger at another, there are three fingers pointed back at us. Wow. What a simple bit of theology which says to us that we ought to look for new life, not by criticizing others, blaming others, but by looking at ourselves. That's the more positive tone. Uh, When the judgment day comes, as I think we do stand in, in judgment before the throne of God as we we prepare for life after. I don't think God is going to be looking at excuses from us. I think God is going to ask us to be honest. That God asks us and expects us to be honest honest every day, looking not at the faults of others, passing judgment not on others, but remember that that others perhaps are looking at us. And and the writer in Luke's gospel says to us, we should should have a circumstance where people point their fingers at us. Now, wait wait a minute, I just said to you we shouldn't point our fingers at anybody else. But there's a point at which people should say of us, you're the one, You're the one. You're the one who gives food to the needy. Just want to turn it around, not criticism, but turn it around. You're the one who, who when the pastor says we need extra groceries, you bring extra groceries. You go out and get them as soon as you can and and bring them in. You're the one who says um, we need somebody to do this job in the church, and you're the one who says, yes, uh, I I will do it. Um, You're the one who perhaps brings your neighbor's children to Sunday school uh, with you as, as you as you bring your own children to Sunday school. You're the one who tithes. Thank you. Thank you for all of these things that, that you are. None of them are negative. You're the one, you're a, one of these people who, who visits the sick, or if, if you deem it a circumstance where it would be disruptive, you send a card or make a phone call to the family. You're the one. Yes, Jesus speaks to both circumstances. You're the one who who can be negative, who can be a sinner. And any times the preacher says that, the preacher has to be looking at himself or herself in that particular circumstance. But you're also the one who can be making life positive for others. And you're regular in your worship, in your giving, 
in your serving, you're the one. You're the one who steps forward to serve uh, in, in the kingdom of God. Which one are we? Which one are we? What choice shall we make? Shall we ultimately do what we have to do? And, and it's, not, it's not strenuous. It's a gift. It's a grace which God has given us to realize that in all things, in this coming week and in all the weeks that are to come, we must make Jesus the king of our lives. We must make him the one with the ultimate authority over us. Will we make that choice today? Have we made that choice? Your being here is part of that choice, I believe, that you've chosen to put Jesus in the forefront of your life and make him what we don't have. We don't have on this earth a king uh, in the United States, but to make him our spiritual king, to make him be ultimately the ultimate criteria in our lives because he is the one who can do that. And so we're going to sing this, this last hymn, Come Thou Almighty King, and hopefully welcome Jesus with our words, with our songs of praise, and invite him to be what we need to have in our lives, to be our very king. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.